Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. And the context and the setting is where Jesus is kind of saying his final words to his disciples before he goes off to his crucifixion. Um, They're gathered together at the Last Supper, and he's giving them some final instructions and uh, trying to comfort them a little bit and reassure them that things will be okay eventually. Um, Which for them, it was probably needed at that point. They were insecure. They were fearful of the future. Um which I'm trying to, I was trying to make a connection with them and us today. And um, I think, although we may not have any kind of a personal um, departure looming in our future, we live in an unsettled kind of world today. We have um, threats of war with uh, people that are playing with nuclear devices. Um, we have natural disasters, hurricanes, and earthquakes. We've got um, social fault lines that are cracking in our society um, between race and gender and politics, and it just a lot of things just kind of feel unsettled right now and maybe gives us a sense of insecurity. Um, as for Christians, we also see the fact that at least in Western uh, civilization, especially in the United States, the Christian consensus that we used to be comfortable with is starting to fragment and maybe disappear. Um, Christians are a shrinking segment in our society. Uh, churches are losing membership. And so for us, it feels as if some things are starting to unravel. Those of us who are used, maybe used to the Christian context. Uh, some of our Christian influence and our symbols um, are, are losing significance in the wider culture. And so it makes us feel uneasy, maybe a little bit out of place. And so those are some things I think that we can feel and maybe identify with those disciples that Jesus spoke to as well. And oftentimes our thought is, well, maybe if we could have just been with those disciples and been with Jesus himself, we would have a better feeling for uh, who we are and our, our futures as well. We would know what to do and, and how to get it done. Or even if Jesus were with us right now in person, we might feel better about that. But there's a couple problems with that kind of thinking. Uh, one is that there were many people that were alive and lived with Jesus who didn't get it. They didn't get him and either were opposed to him or just didn't understand what he was saying. So being in Jesus' presence may or may not be our remedy. Um, A second thing is that, as we find in our passage today, Jesus did promise that he would be with them, the disciples, in the future and for always. And that promise applies to us as well. So there is a sense in which we don't have to think about, well, if Jesus were just here today or if I were with Jesus, because we'll find out today that really Jesus does promise to be with us. Um, If we take a look at our text, uh, it's in John 14, and we'll start with verse 15. Um, As I mentioned before, the disciples that Jesus was sitting with and eating with and talking to, they were fearful of losing him. He had told them that he was going to go away. Um, He was their teacher, their leader, their friend, and they were facing that kind of thing. For the people who read the Gospel of John first, the ones that it was written for, were probably some of the earliest Christian churches. And they were living in a context where they were facing hostility from the uh, larger society, uh, persecution from the Roman government. And so these words, as they read them in their congregations, were probably a source of reassurance for them as well. 
And it's called Jesus' farewell discourse or his farewell speech kind of thing. And it's parting words of wisdom that he gives to his disciples that we are going to try to appropriate for us today. So if you don't mind, um, I'd like to ask you to stand for the gospel reading. These are the words of Jesus, and so we'll stand in reverence for that. Here's what Jesus said. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. There's three things going on in this passage. One, Jesus talks about loving and obeying him. The second is the promise of the Holy Spirit, or he calls him the advocate. And then third, there's some kind of talk about the inner relationships between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus' disciples. So we're going to look at this passage, but as we do so, we're going to try to unweave some of this tapestry and we're going to look at the verses in a slightly different order than what we just read them. And because that might be a little bit cumbersome to show on the screen, you might want to keep your Bibles or your Bible apps open to what we just read because I'll be jumping around a little bit and it would be easier for you to follow that way. So we're going to start with the second topic, which is the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit <clears throat> has often been this kind of the Cinderella of the Holy Trinity, um, the other two, the Father and the Son, they got to go to the ball, but the Holy Spirit got left behind at home to clean up stuff or something. Um, or use another metaphor, it might be the Holy Spirit might be considered the Rodney Dangerfield of the Trinity. He, he doesn't get any respect. Um, <clears throat> but, but that's because there's some kind of a, a secret or maybe a hidden quality about the Holy Spirit that makes it difficult to speak or to write about. Um, there was an, a medieval uh, theologian called St. Simeon, and he wrote this little poem. It's kind of like a riddle almost, like something out of The Hobbit maybe where Bilbo is, is or uh, yeah, Bilbo is talking in riddles to the dragon Smaug. It's a riddle about what he learned about God and it could be applied specifically to the Holy Spirit. And here's what St. Simeon wrote. It is invisible and no hand can lay hold of it. Intangible 
and yet it can be felt everywhere. What is it? What is it not? For it has no name. In my foolishness, foolishness, I tried to grasp it, and I closed my hand, thinking that I held it fast. But it escaped, and I could not retain it in my fingers. Full of sadness, I unclenched my grip, and once again I saw it in the palm of my hand. So for St. Simeon, he puts his finger on the fact that the Holy Spirit is hard to talk about, hard to hold of, hard to get uh, a a handle on. The Gospels tell us a lot about Jesus the Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, He became human, so we kind of know basically what he looked like. He had a body like ours. Uh, We have his words and his actions described. So we can get a pretty good picture of him in our hearts and our minds. But the Holy Spirit, we can't weigh or measure. We can't hold it, the Holy Spirit, or lock him in a box. The actions of the Holy Spirit can't really be defined verbally. They're kind of uh, vague to talk about. They're best experienced when we live them and uh, feel them and experience them personally. Now, despite all of this vagueness about the Holy Spirit, there's two things that Christians hold uh, pretty strongly to. One, the Spirit is a person. It's not a divine blast or not some impersonal force. That belongs to science fiction movies. Um, The Spirit's one of the three eternal persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we can and we should enter into a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's what they call an I-thou relationship, not an I-thit, I-it relationship. An I-it relationship is where we have a relationship to something like a chair that we sit on or something that we buy or use. But an I-thou relationship is a personal relationship. And that's what the Holy Spirit means for us as a person. The second thing that Christians have always believed is that As the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is equal to and has always existed along with the Father and the Son. There's a hymn that the Orthodox churches sing at Pentecost, which kind of expresses this really well. Here's what it says. The Holy Spirit, I won't sing it because I have no sense of rhythm, right? Okay. The Holy Spirit forever was and is and shall be. He has neither beginning nor ending, but he is always joined and numbered with the Father and the Son, life and giver of life, light and bestower of light, love itself and source of love. Through him the Father is made known. Through him the Son is glorified and revealed to all. So that summarizes some of the basic core concepts of what the church has always believed about the Holy Spirit. Um, I want to take us on a quick little history tour of the Holy Spirit and how people have experienced the Holy Spirit. I came across this thing, it's, I think it's a British guy that put these together, called Theology Grams. It's an attempt to explain theology concepts using charts and graphs. It was kind of cool, and his are very humorous. Mine is more straightforward than I'll use today, but this is one that I made up. It's a timeline of the activity of the Holy Spirit. We have that graph? Thank you. Um, so we see that this, the timeline stretches back thousands of years before Christ, okay, on your far left. That tells us that the Holy Spirit was active and present in creation. The first words of Genesis say that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Holy Spirit was present and involved in creation of the universe and the world. And God created humans by breathing his spirit 
And the, Greek, or the Hebrew word for spirit is the same as breath and the same as, as wind. So when God breathes into the dust that he formed to create the first human, God is giving a life-giving spirit to the people that he made. And then later on, the Holy Spirit comes on certain individuals for a certain period of time uh, for a specific purpose, like some task or some event that um, God wanted the Holy Spirit to um, um, be with that person. For example, in the period of the judges, before there was a king of Israel, uh, the people were ruled by what they called judges. And the Holy Spirit would come on these judges from time to time and for a specific purpose. So, for example, in Judges 3.10, it says, The people cried out to the Lord, and he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. So that was an example of the Spirit coming on a person specifically for one purpose. And when, Daniel, or when David was anointed as king, um, 1 Samuel 16, 13 says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And we read about in the prophets how the Spirit of the Lord would come upon the prophets to give them something to say, and they would speak to the people on behalf of God because the Holy Spirit came on them for that particular uh, speech or utterance. Um, Isaiah, a famous passage out of Isaiah 61, says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And Ezekiel has the same kind of thing. He says, The Spirit of the Lord came on me, and he told me to say, This is what the Lord says, that what you are saying, you leaders in Israel, and, but, and I know what is going through your mind. So Ezekiel had a word for the leaders of Israel that came to him because the Spirit came upon him for that particular uh, purpose. Now, you'll see there's a slight little... Oh, where did our graph go? Whoops. Can we have the graph back up there? The line graph? Thanks. Um, around 500 B.C., there's a little bump there. That's the time of the prophets. And from there, for several hundred years, the Holy Spirit came upon the prophets as they kind of explained what God had for them. There's another bump there at 4 B.C. That's when Jesus was born. The Gospels tell us that Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was born from the Holy Spirit coming upon the Virgin Mary. And so that means the Holy Spirit was involved in the incarnation of Jesus. And also when we read the stories of when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him as he was coming up out of the waters and bestowed on him power for his ministry. And his first public audience, when Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, he opened the book of Isaiah and read from that same passage, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor. And he said, today in your hearing, these words have been fulfilled in me. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus' ministry. So we see that there's an uptick in the activity of the Holy Spirit, especially upon Jesus. But a huge jump is on the day of Pentecost, because before then, the Spirit came upon just a few individuals for a certain period of time for a specific task. But on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given to all the believers forever. So it's not just a hit and miss thing. It's not like for certain chosen people. It's for all of us. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit available to them. So when you become converted, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you have the Holy Spirit as promised because of what happened at the day of Pentecost. So from that time until this, all Christians everywhere have equal access to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes upon us equally. Now, the Holy Spirit, when he does come upon us, 
does certain things for us. There are certain functions and roles that the Holy Spirit has for us. And that's our next chart, the pie graph. Don't you love pie graphs? I, didn't, I couldn't figure out how to do a Venn diagram, but so we'll just stick with a pie chart here for today. Um, these are some of the role, major roles of the Holy Spirit. It um, doesn't cover them all. We don't have time to go over, through everything. But here's some of the basic ones. As in our passage today, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the advocate. And so the larger section there, the blue one, is talking about the Holy Spirit as advocate. Now, the Greek word that we read that John used is called paraclete, and that means someone who comes alongside of or stands beside. And the language comes from a kind of a law court kind of a setting where you have someone to represent you in court before the judge or the jury. That's what a paraclete did in ancient Greek and Roman times. So when Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you, he's saying that there is someone coming alongside of you Someone to help you, guide you, um, to be uh, on your side, you might say. Um, to go to bat for you, to have your back. Or like the nationwide, he's there because, how's the word go? He's on your side? Like nationwide, he's on your side. Remember the pipe man? Okay, never mind. Okay. Anyway, the idea is that the Holy Spirit is your helper. He's your helper. He's there to advocate for you, to be on your behalf between you and God. Uh, between you and whatever might, you might be facing in the world, the Holy Spirit is with you as your advocate, your helper. Um, now, there's another aspect <clears throat> to the Holy Spirit, and that is, and this is mentioned in our passage today, that the Holy Spirit uh, reveals truth. He tells the truth uh, about things. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have taught you. So the Holy Spirit serves to lead us into God's truth, revealing things about God to us, revealing, revealing things about ourselves to us. Sometimes we have blind spots, but the Holy Spirit acts to kind of reveal those kinds of things to us. And especially the Spirit's role is to make Christ known to us uh, through his teachings, recalling to our minds what Jesus taught, um, also to remind us what Jesus would have us do in a certain situation. And so this is part of the reason why it's so hard to get a hold of the Holy Spirit, his transparency, you might say, or the indescribable nature of the Holy Spirit, is because he doesn't point to himself. He points to Jesus. And everything that he does reveals Jesus to us and helps us know what Jesus wants us to do. The Spirit reveals the truth to ourself, about ourselves to us, sometimes the ugly truth, but that can lead to conversion when we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we know that we're not right with God that can lead us back to asking for forgiveness and receiving that forgiveness from God and being reconciled to other people and to God as well. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, to reveal truth to us about that. Another role of the Holy Spirit is to be the gift. We talked about how the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to all believers at Pentecost. That is the gift. Um, but also the Holy Spirit gives to individual believers gifts. Um, I think it's in, is it Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12? There's long lists that Paul writes of what he calls the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Gifts that the, God, that the Holy Spirit gives to us to help each other, to serve the church, to function in the church, and to serve in the world as well. We have talents and abilities and also spiritual gifts that are coming to us from the Holy Spirit. Also, this gift of the Holy Spirit also is another gift, major gift that he works on, is called sanctification. That is the process of becoming more and more like Christ. 
the Holy Spirit helps that happen in us. Um, it's the process um, by which we become more and more Christ-like. And if you look in Galatians chapter 5, there's this list called the fruit of the Spirit. Those are basically character qualities of people who are being sanctified or being made holy or being made more and more like Christ. Those are Christ-like attributes and characteristics. And that's what the Holy Spirit does inside of each individual believer as we open ourselves up to him. Then the fourth pie chart, piece of pie there, is what we call the unifier. The Holy Spirit serves to bring us unity as a church. The bond of unity between the Holy Spirit and God and Jesus in the Trinity, that same kind of unity is shared with the church as well. So the Holy Spirit serves to bring unity among all believers, no matter where we come from, no matter what kind of gifts we have, no matter what our backgrounds are. Um, he brings together people we wouldn't normally associate with together in the, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And all those traditional boundaries that kind of divide us, the Holy Spirit ignores those or breaks through them and unites us as fellow believers in the church. That's the Holy Spirit's role as a unifier. But there's a paradox there as well, because the Holy Spirit also is the source of our diversity. Not only does the Holy Spirit make us all one, but he makes us all different from each other as well. Remember at Pentecost, the story was that people were gathered in Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire. They spoke different languages, had different cultures, and when they started, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were able to hear the gospel preached by the disciples in their own language. They could all hear what the one message was, but it was through the different languages that were being spoken. So in the diversity, the Holy Spirit was able to communicate the single message. The different languages weren't abolished, but they did not become a cause of separation any longer. The Holy Spirit brought unity and divert through our diversity. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit are just as varied as the different people that are sitting in this room as well. We all have gifts, but they're all different. And when they combine together, they serve the church and make us all one. And we could live as Christians, basically, as without the Holy Spirit. Um, we've talked about the unity that we get from the Holy Spirit, the gift of sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ. Um, but also through the sacraments, those are also gifts of the Holy Spirit. The sacraments become means of grace to us because of the Holy Spirit working through them. Our prayer life is basically driven by the Holy Spirit. We can only pray certain words, but the Holy Spirit takes our words and, pre and presents them to God and communicates them, interprets them basically to God so that what is inside of our hearts, even though we may not have words for it, the Holy Spirit communicates that to God. And vice, um, likewise, the, in, the communication flows back from God to us through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is vital to our prayer life as well. When we read and try to understand Scripture, the Holy Spirit has to be involved in that as well. The Scriptures were inspired. That's another root word for the word for breathing, which comes from the Holy Spirit. The, whole, the Scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so the, the people who wrote the Bible, the words that we call the Bible... They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when we read the scriptures, we need to be inspired by the Holy Spirit to understand them as well. So the Holy Spirit is involved in the writing as well as the reading of scripture and the understanding of scripture. So that's vital for us as well. There are other aspects of personal experiences of the Holy Spirit that we all receive from time to time. Um, but our conversion, our whole salvation story, being convicted of sin, being forgiven being converted, being sanctified and made holy, made more Christ-like, that's all 
done through the Holy Spirit. So that's an important part for us to know, basically, our theology of the Holy Spirit. That's a, a theology of the Holy Spirit in a nutshell, kind of. That's the first thing that's going on in this passage, talking about the Holy Spirit. The second thing, though, was where Jesus was talking about this interrelationship between the Father, the Son, and the disciples, and the Holy Spirit. Um, there's some curious words that are, that are used in here. <clears throat> Verses 19, 20, and 28 all um, seem to be kind of vague and mystical. There's kind of a confusing mishmash of language of being in or being with or being for me, my father, you, and I. All these words are kind of put together in kind of a mystical mishmash of, of words. Jesus said, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, you are in me, I am in you. These words you hear are not my own, but they belong to the Father who sent me. There's all sorts of weird back and forth going on here. You heard me say, I'm going away, and I am coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I love the Father and do exactly what the Father has commanded me. How are we supposed to understand all of this stuff? It sounds kind of vague and mushy to me. Uh, interestingly, <clears throat> I, I read this week an article in The Atlantic about how neuroscientists think they understand about how the ancient Israelite prophets were able to speak the words of God to their culture. Neuroscientists have come up with a theory. Wouldn't you like to know? Okay, I'm going to tell you. Okay. Here's what this article says. We have a body and, and we have a brain. We can see them, we can feel them, we can explore them with, through science and medical science and things, um, experimentation. We can touch and learn about them. And the neuroscientists have been able to plot regions in the brain that process incoming information, the things that we see or touch or smell. Um, there's different regions of the brains that process all of that stuff. Um, and parts of the brains also control speech or linear thinking or abstract thinking. Different parts of the brain register our emotions and our feelings. They've been able to plot all that because they can test the brain. They can take brains and look at them and see where they, how they function. But there's also something else that we think about our brains, or we, I don't know where you think it might happen, but we think of ourselves as being kind of a clearinghouse for all of this information that's coming in, this data that's coming in, and we're processing it somehow to make sense of it. Um, and so what comes in through our eyes and our ears, we decide what to think about it and how to respond. Um, the problem is that scientists can't find an area of the brain that does that. There is no physical center that does all of that for us. That is something that we have constructed and placed upon ourselves. We have a sense of our ideas, our self, but there is no self center in the brain that scientists can poke and prod or dissect. Um, your, your sense of self, your me-ness, is something that we apply to ourselves that apparently is a social construct. It's something that we make up for ourselves to make sense of how we were processing everything. So if there is no physical self in our heads or hearts or wherever you might think it might be, um, where does that come from? Well, this article says that apparently it comes from our culture. Uh, the culture of ancient Israel saw itself as one that was open to other selves. That is, I am uh, kind of a part of you, and you are part of me. And also, this openness was also open to God. 
So that way the prophets could experience God's presence in them in such a way that they could speak with confidence and authority that what they were saying was God's words. That's why you see in the prophets, thus saith the Lord, kind of thinking. They had confidence that they were speaking on God's behalf because they had entered into oneness, I guess, with God in a certain sense. Because their culture allowed them to do that. There was a merging of selves in that culture that we don't have today. This comes out really clear in the, one of the better-known psalms, Psalm 139. Listen to some of these words here. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. <clears throat> you know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And then it concludes by, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That is a reflection of that ancient Israelite culture of being open to God and having God know you in a way which you could not communicate directly to another person. So this allowed the prophets to speak as if they knew the mind of God, to be almost taken over by the Spirit of God and to see what God wanted to say to the people and to say it with confidence and authority. Well, in our Western culture, we're not used to that kind of thinking about ourselves and other people. Um, we have a more of a, what we call a bounded individual self-concept, um, which actually this article said is really an anomaly. Most societies in the world, especially in ancient times, uh, conceived of the self as being more porous, or what's the scientific word, semi-permeable um, to other people, um, to other personalities. Um, and much of the world today still has that kind of thinking about themselves. It's a lot more collective than ours. Ours is very individualistic and bounded up. Um, so for other people in other cultures, um, their own existence and their identity comes in large part because they are connected to their siblings or their cousins or their clan or their tribe. Um, who they are is very much connected to and defined by who they came from or who they are part of, as well as being themselves alone. Now, that's kind of heady stuff, uh, neuros neuroscience and philosophy and all that kind of stuff. Here's, my, here's the way I kind of think in my head about this. Um, we have a picture, uh, Jay, of these are called inflatable collision balls. Have you seen these? Have you played with these before? You crawl inside these great big inflatable balls, and then you can play soccer with them, but you can't get close to each other because you bump into each other wearing these balls. Or you can just run around in a big field and just ram into each other and bounce all over the place. It's fun, but that's kind of our Western sense of who we are as individuals, just individual people in our little bubbles bouncing kind of off of each other. And we interact with each other by bouncing and hitting and sometimes colliding, falling over and rolling, those kinds of things. Um, <clears throat> that's what we think of as ourself, usually, individual units, running around, bouncing around, whatever. Um, but on the ancient view and lots of other cultural views today that are more collective or corporate in their nature, I think may be more like what we see in the Colorado mountains a lot. Here's the next picture. This is an aspen grove. Aspen groves grow in clonal colonies, they call them. They're clones, basically, of each other. 
they share the same root system. That's how aspen duplicate. They don't spread seeds or anything like that or spores. They have roots that go underground and then little suckers come up, little sprouts come up. And so all of this whole grove here is really interconnected to each other through their root system. Um, botanical term is called rhizomes. I don't know if you've heard that before. But new stems in the colony can appear at least almost 100 feet away from the original tree, the original stalk. And each individual tree that you see here can live up to 40, 50, 100, 150 years, maybe, above ground. But below ground, that root system can live for generations. In fact, there's one colony in Utah that they think is 80,000 years old. 80,000 years old because that interwoven root system puts up new sprouts all the time. Now, individual trees may die off, but the organism itself continues to live. And it's all interwoven and intertwined and in some ways identical to each other. That's my way of understanding what this neuroscientist article was trying to say about how other cultures and especially the ancient Israelite culture and Jesus' culture thought of themselves as being connected to each other. Okay, so that's the science of it. <clears throat> in theology, we have a term, of course. Theology always has different language to use. We have a, a version of this that we call perichoresis. Yes, here's the word, perichoresis. Um, perichoresis is a Greek word made up of two basic wor words. A combination of peri, which means around, like perimeter, or something like that. Uh, peri means around, and the verb korain, which means to make space. So roughly translated, it means to make space around. So you're making space around yourself. Perichoresis is making space around yourself, which kind of goes along with his idea of making space for the other, to interweave their lives with you. Um, <clears throat> excuse, pardon me. Um, specifically, it refers to the way in which somebody makes space around himself or herself for others to approach or to join in to your life. So by being in perichoresis, we are inviting other people to become part with us, to participate in our lives as well. Now, here's some more analogies that make more sense to me. Um, I think especially in terms of sports, especially team sports, like, say, um, volleyball or... Uh, basketball or soccer or football where you have to orchestrate your movements and know where your teammate is going to be at certain points in order to pass the ball or to spike or set the ball. Um, I saw an interview, just a snippet of an interview the other day <clears throat> where um, former quarterback for the Broncos, Jake Plummer. Does anybody remember Jake Plummer? Um, he was actually one of my favorite quarterbacks for the Broncos. He was in town and they were interviewing him and he, they said, one of the questions that they, they closed the interview with was, um, when you got in trouble, um, who was your favorite receiver to throw to? Um, and like, like that, instantly, he said, Rod Smith. They were on the same wave, wavelength. He knew when a play broke down, he knew exactly where Rod would be, and he knew that he could get a pass to him because Rod knew how to get open for Jake. And they had this kind of nonverbal communications wavelength kind of a thing, knowing each other's moves and the way they played their game. And so that, to me, is a way of talking about perichoresis on the sports field. Um, there are some other artistic activities that maybe involve perichoresis, uh, moving back and forth in time together, maybe musicians. I don't know if you experience that or not. I wouldn't know because I'm not a musician. But you have to be on the same beat, right, in the same key or whatever it is or whatever you call it. Um, <laughs> but your timing has to be in sync, right? I know the word in sync is, okay. Um, 
<clears throat> here's another area where I think makes even a better um, connection. Um, <clears throat> when I was in college and for a few years afterwards, I was involved in some theater productions. And <clears throat> as an actor, you had to interact with someone. Although you had lines that were already scripted, you still had to feed off of each other and know how each other was going to say, deliver that line and their timing and be able to just talk, you know, don't interrupt them, but yet don't wait too long after their line before you said your line. You couldn't, you know, when you were blocking a scene, you couldn't block the view of the audience from another person who was going to speak. So you had to know where to move in, on the stage in order to not block somebody. Um, and not only with your fellow actors, but there's a third partner involved, and that was the audience. Especially when you're doing a comedy, we were always told by our directors, we have to practice as if we know there's going to be a laugh right here. So you have to wait. Your timing has to be wait for the laugh lines. When there's a laugh line there that's going to get a laugh, you have to anticipate that and know not to start speaking or moving yet until the audience responds to you. And the interesting thing was that even though you were doing the same play, you know, days after day after day, the audiences were all different, and they would laugh at different things. They thought different things were funny, and you, would, you didn't anticipate that, so you had to learn how to adapt to the audience as well. When you sensed or you heard that they were laughing at something, you had to back off and wait for the laughter to die down so the next line wouldn't get lost in the, in the hubbub. And so you were, it was basically, um, well, this will lead into my next point. It was kind of like a dance. You were dancing with the audience and the actors on the stage, um, trying to figure out when and where to move and speak and things like that. And this perichoresis, that root word core, is also part of the word root for choreography. So when you're choreographing, 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 thank you, um, a scene or a dance or something, um, you're figuring out how to move in space with your partner or your partners, the other dance partners on the floor. Um, believe it or not, this is one of the favorite metaphors that theologians have come up with to describe the Trinity. Uh, they talk about the Trinity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as perichoresis or a divine dance. Now we can look at that next uh, slide, please. This is a way to talk about the Holy Spirit in relationship to the Father and the Son. <clears throat> Notice how different it is from the charts and the graphs that we used before. Not a straight line in this one. They're all curved and they, they're involving movement. Lots of colors, not just black and white and a few little dots of color. But it's colorful, it's dynamic, it's moving, it's swirling, it's interacting with each other. That's the relationship that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have. And the interesting thing is... Um, we're invited to join this dance. That's what Jesus is talking about with his disciples here in John 14. The divine dance of the three persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are moving in and through each other, dancing with each other, in such a way that there's a mutual indwelling, that semi-permeable relationship that we talked about is happening between all three members of the Trinity. And we're invited to join that because Christ invited us to join that dance. We can abide in, dwell in, live in, be with, all those words that we read about in the passage, that in, implies this kind of a choreographical existence with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus wants us to share in the perichoresis of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that reciprocal relationship that makes us humans become more and more Christ-like the more we are danced, dancing with them. Now you know why I don't, I, I'm talking above my head. I don't know what dancing is like, but sometimes preachers have to talk above where they really are. We are. The Bible tells us we have to be able to speak the truth, and this is what I'm trying to communicate to you this morning. 
Um, I don't really know what dancing is like, but this is what the Holy Spirit is like, and this is the language that theologians have used over the years to talk about our relationship with the Divine Trinity. Um, <clears throat> the music that we all dance to is the music of love, divine love. And that brings us to the third element in our passage, where Jesus talked about loving him and obeying him. Um, he talked about loving and obeying his commandments or his words. And with the Holy Spirit reminding us and teaching us about Jesus' words, Jesus' disciples are called to act upon them. Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commands. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Now, our natural tendency is to read these kind of as a sequential to-do list. That is... A, if we keep Jesus' commands, then B, that's evidence that we love him. There's a cause, a cause and effect kind of a thing going on there. So our focus then becomes doing Jesus' instructions and his teachings, right? But before long, we wind up doing that as a duty. And then duty, history has shown, often slides or slips into legalism. And so we start judging ourselves for our performance or judging other people for their performance, but if we remember the context that we just discovered and just explored, the one about the divine dance, the perichoresis, we know that Jesus didn't live in our Western culture with its linear thinking and its rationalism. And he wasn't ordering us to do a checkoff list kind of a thing, to check off our to-do list. He was inviting us to a dance, to join in on the divine perichoresis between his Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to share in that love that they have with each other. So... When love is the basis for our relationships, we'll naturally want to do what is best for the other, right? If you've been involved in a romantic relationship, a marriage or even, that's supposed to be what happens there, right? Our actions flow from our love for the other. So the same way with God. Our actions, our obedience to Jesus flow from our love for Jesus and for God. Jesus said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. See what comes first? Love comes first and then obeying or following his teachings comes second. It's a natural progression, not a required performance. So the commands are not the way. John told us last week, John Watkin told us last week, that Jesus is the way. His commands are not the way. Jesus is the way. But we who participate in the divine dance with Jesus and that he invites us to will at the same time participate in the meaning and fulfillment of those commands, so those commandments and the teachings of Jesus. So it becomes a natural flow from us. Obedience flows naturally when we are involved in the loving dance with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus was talking about. Not a to-do list where you had to perform and be legalistic about it, but you naturally will obey my teachings when you um, follow me in love. So the resulting relationships then aren't legal. They're not artificial, but they're marked by love and acceptance, sharing and support, Security, like you find in a healthy family. That's why Jesus said, My Father will love them, and He will come to them, and we will come to them, and we will make our home with them. The language there is of a home, a household, loving relationships. And one of the commands that Jesus gave us was to eat and drink the simple meal that we call communion, or sometimes we call it Eucharist, giving thanks, great thanks. Um, it's one way that we can express our love for the gift of Jesus, Jesus the Son and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Communion is also a symbol of our unity as fellow believers. Again, that's another gift of the Holy Spirit, right? 
our unity as followers of Jesus and members of one another in the universal church, that's one thing that we do all together. We all participate in communion. All Christians do. And communion is a sacrament, which is a means of grace. The Holy Spirit uses that means of grace to give us spiritual food and nurture that we need to grow in Christ, to become more and more like Christ. Now, one of the many ways that we prepare for communion, and traditionally um, lots of churches do this, is to remind each other of what we share together as our common faith, the basic beliefs that we hold as followers of Jesus. So right now, I'd invite you to join our spirits and our hearts together. Um, the worship team is going to come up, and they're going to lead us in singing the Apostles' Creed. That's one thing that unites us, and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you as we recite or sing these words that will prepare us for receiving communion.